0: Welcome to the NutraCast, a production by Nutra Ingredients USA. I'm Danielle Masterson. Thank you for joining me here on the NutraCast, where we talk and share insights from inside the nutrition industry. Over 70% of Americans take dietary supplements, and by now, most consumers have probably come across a disclaimer that says, this statement has not been evaluated by the FDA. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Under federal law, supplements are prohibited from claiming they can prevent or treat any virus or specific condition. So why are websites like Amazon laden with supplements that claim they're a remedy for viruses? Joining me now to discuss this and more is public health advocate and policy director of the Center for Science in the Public Interest, Laura McCleary. Laura, welcome to the NutriCast. Thank you so much. So CSPI has been actively monitoring products and claims, and in early June, you actually reached out to Amazon regarding about 50 products that are sold by third parties on their website that were making virus claims. What was the response from Amazon, and did any of those marketers respond?
1: Yeah, so we wrote Amazon. We actually only looked at the first 50 products, and of those, we found 46 that were making illegal antiviral claims, so we didn't even sort of touch anything but the tip of the iceberg. And we sent our findings to the Federal Trade Commission and the Food and Drug Administration. And then we also wrote Amazon directly to ask the company to remove the products. Then we looked at the end of June and we found that 26 of the supplements were still making misleading claims on their own websites or on Amazon or other online marketplaces. So it's quite disappointing. We haven't heard directly back from Amazon in response to our letter, we did get a thank you note from the two federal agencies. And, you know, it, it's disappointing because we think we're in the middle of a pandemic. We need to make sure that legitimate and evidence-based information about virus prevention is given to consumers.
0: Yeah, I'm a little surprised they never responded. So you said the FTC and the FDA did thank you for that. Did they get any warning
1: letters? Were they fine? Do you know what happened with those? They don't tell us anything about their enforcement activities. So we find out at the same time as the public in general. I anticipate that they're working on it, that I know that they sometimes directly approach Amazon about problematic things that are on their website. We've also looked around at other online marketplaces like eBay, Facebook, and Etsy. And there's lots of misleading claims and products being sold and marketed through those sites as well. So we think there's a lot of work for all of the platforms to do in terms of making sure that consumers are not misled. Right. I mean, Amazon is probably the biggest one, but like you
0: noted, I mean, it's, it's across the board. It's all over the internet. This dilemma sort of reminds me of Facebook, right? There's so many users that are posting fake news and, and spreading fake news, including things related to treating and curing the coronavirus. Whose responsibility do you think it is? Do you think it is on the consumer? Do you think it's on, you know, someone like Amazon as
1: the FTC and, and FDA? Well, when something is a direct piece of marketing for a product, that's clearly the Food and Drug Administration, the Federal Trade Commission, the state attorneys general, that's law enforcement, because those claims are misleading. And there's a brand manufacturer or seller of the brand that is making those claims. So that's absolutely in part a matter of government enforcement. However, marketplaces are so enormous and Amazon, eBay, and Etsy all take a share of the profits of anything that moves through their platform. And they also gather data on sales and use those data to perfect their business model and to develop their own products. So they also have a shared responsibility to make sure that the things that they're marketing to consumers with their marketplace are compliant with the law the very idea of selling a supplement that will prevent or treat COVID-19 or any virus or medical condition imposes the same kinds of risks. So someone could take the supplement and think that you know they can go visit their elderly parents or they could go out in public without a mask or they could uh, go about their business and uh, go teach school if they're a teacher and they will not be protected by that supplement and so In the case of a pandemic, you can see really clearly that believing in the false promises of a product like a supplement can be dangerous to yourself, it can be dangerous to people you love, and to the community at large. We see that a lot in the supplement marketplace. You know, people are sold down the river with promises of things that will help them lose weight, and really, a lot of those products are spiked with amphetamines or other drugs, and all of them are ineffective. What helps people lose weight is diet and exercise, but it's not profitable to market those things straight up. And so everyone is looking for that magic pill and people are only too happy to profit off of their broken dreams. But if someone needs to lose weight for health reasons and they take a supplement and are misled, that can be demoralizing, that can increase their risk down the road of other diet related diseases, like diabetes or hypertension because they're not addressing the underlying problem because they're taking a supplement to do it. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of risks in the supplement marketplace and it's very poorly regulated. Let's unpack that, you said it's
0: poorly regulated. What do you mean by that?
1: I mean that the Food and Drug Administration, which is the main overseer of the safety of consumer products like drugs, dietary supplements, medical devices, that agency doesn't have the tools that it needs it can only issue a warning letter against a bad actor and then it has to wait for the company to take action as opposed to you know dealing with a penalty it has to then refer a case to the department of justice and hope that they have the bandwidth to take up the enforcement action and it only has a few staff in washington and the dietary supplement marketplace is 60 billion dollars a year in sales with over 55,000 products so they're just hopelessly outgunned by an industry that is allowed to sell risky products to consumers and escape any uh, liability for doing so.
0: By unregulated or poorly regulated, you mean dietary supplements are not pre-approved like drugs. Drugs are required to seek FDA pre-approval. I don't think that's ever gonna happen for dietary supplements. We could go the food route, but then we wouldn't have cautions, warnings, um, especially built GMPs, NDIs, things like that. So, what do you think uh, the industry should do?
1: Well, so we're all for a proposal that would give the Food and Drug Administration more tailored enforcement and regulatory authorities. One thing we'd like to see is that for products, categories of products that are known to pose a high risk to consumers, because they are commonly tainted with drugs or synthetic ingredients or because they're marketed to vulnerable populations like, say, pregnant women, because maybe they're part of the cannabinoid industry like CBD and have special risks, those products should have you know, more authority for both pre-market and post-market reviews. So they would be subject to more safety examination on the front end. And then they would also be subject to random audits by the agency in a testing program to specific oversight. We also think all dietary supplements should be registered with the FDA so that it can track which companies are making which products and selling it by number. And then marketplaces like Amazon or eBay could verify that a dietary supplement is properly registered with FDA before it sells it to consumers. So a mandatory registration requirement. And other ideas as well, more enforcement authority for FDA so they can have a They can issue a penalty, their very first letter out of the gate, um, that they could have more enforcement staff, that they would share enforcement responsibilities with the state attorneys general, which would give them more eyes and ears uh, among law enforcement. Ideas like that to really ensure that they have um, something closer to the tools that they would need to keep consumers safe.
0: And those are all great in theory, but where would the resources come from?
1: A modest registration fee that could go along with the registration database would do a lot. Their current budget is so tiny. It's really just even the Office of Dietary Supplement Programs at FDA only has about 40 people in it. So a little bit of money, additional money and resources for the agency could go a long way in terms of improving their effectiveness. And, you know, this is a $60 billion industry. They could uh, afford to, to ensure that the whole industry isn't put into disrepute by the actions of a very few players comparatively. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, what do you think is wrong with perhaps leaving the choice in consumers' hands? Is it possible for the industry to to educate consumers and educate themselves and and have the freedom to make their own choices?
1: Yeah, buyer beware is not great for most consumer products. I think when consumers go to the marketplace, for example, you walk into a store and the the -the over-the-counter drugs are sold next to the, like the Tylenols of the world are sold next to the supplements of the world. Consumers don't understand that those are regulated entirely differently and that one has to go through pre-market review for safety and pretty elaborate quality testing. And the other one can just be brought to market with very little pre-market, if any, review. And, you know, I found in working with consumers over the years is that there's just a presumption that if a product is sold in the U.S., that there has been some level of oversight of its safety and effectiveness. And that's just not the case. So the other problem is that the current system doesn't reward the better companies. So a company that pays to make sure that what's in the bottle is what's on the label and nothing other than that, or that the product doesn't have extra risks to it, that company, from a consumer perspective, it's hard to differentiate between a company that has, you know, crossed the T's and dotted the I's and what you're, that's what you're buying versus a company that hasn't. So I think not only do we not sort of capture the bad actors in the system, but we don't create a dynamic by which the marketplace gets better over time because there's no incentive to connect with a consumer audience that knows all the backend stuff that you've done to keep them safe.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, there certainly are certain certifications that companies can seek and they can slap that on their label and whatnot. But as you mentioned, maybe the average consumer might not be aware of what labels, what certifications to even look for.
1: That's right. There are some voluntary testing regimes by U.S. Pharmacopeia and others that have a little logo on the product. In general, that's a small amount of the marketplace and it's not a, a thing that's going to address the riskiest products. If people are you know, following some workout guru online and they're selling their own line of supplements, they probably buy them and assume that they're safe enough because somebody regulated them. In fact, FDA has done testing of a many, many of those products and they found something like almost 750 products that are tainted with drugs, some illegal drugs, some synthetic drugs. They may work to help you work out, but that's because you're on an amphetamine, not because um, it's a good product or a safe product to use.
0: At the end of the day, though, when you do look at the number of serious adverse events, they're extremely low.
1: Well, they're probably drastically underreported. So we know that they are the tip of the iceberg. And There were about 23,000 that I saw in the latest major study visits to emergency rooms. A lot of those have to do with these tainted categories of supplements. There's also been a small number of known deaths that are attributable to supplements from products like OxyElite Pro and others. There's also been claims of liver damage from some. There are significant consumer harms, but we also don't have a good read on When these products are displacing evidence based solutions for what people actually need, like the weight loss example. So, you know, if people take a weight loss supplement and it doesn't work, assuming it's not a tainted supplement, it's just an ineffective supplement, and it doesn't work, and they end up getting type 2 diabetes over time because they didn't address their overweight with evidence based, you know, modifications to diet and exercise, that doesn't show up as a supplement. Uh, side effect, but it is. We also don't have good tracking of drug interactions with supplements. A lot of times people go to their doctor or they'll go to the hospital for some kind of um, operation and they are not necessarily top of mind thinking about the supplements that they're taking as a thing that they need to flag. And some of them can lead to interactions with blood thinners or other problems. And so you know, we don't have a good sense from a consumer facing perspective about how many adverse events that are really occurring, the industry also gets to screen them by what they consider serious adverse events under the law. So two remedies that we've proposed are to have a 1-800 number for direct reporting of consumer adverse events to FDA to supplement its database and to take away the requirement that the companies only report serious adverse events and require reporting of all adverse events. That would give FDA a a little bit better uh, sense of what's going on with consumers, but it still would probably be significantly underreported.
0: Yeah, Going back to what you mentioned about the drug supplement interactions, there are a few databases out there that are pretty lengthy that people can look up. But on the other hand, a lot of doctors just don't know a whole lot about dietary supplements. It's really not built into their education. Do you think that doctors need more education in the dietary supplement field?
1: Absolutely. I think it would be helpful if they were more knowledgeable. But I think what would really help is if the FDA has a requirement on the packaging of a supplement that flags that there's a possibility for drug interaction where that possibility is known. So if in the drug labeling context you have drugs that are um, have identified those kinds of interactions with supplements, the supplement should similarly be signaling to consumers that if they're on, you know, heart medication or uh, some category of drugs the way that a consumer might think about it to address a a health issue that they should check with their doctor to make sure that that supplement doesn't interact with the drugs. And that would drive a lot more physician knowledge of these particular interactions if consumers were prompting them and if the labels had to disclose them.
0: There's some responsibility on doctors, also nutritionists. I mean, there's a lot of registered dietitians out there that also just are not educated enough in that field.
1: Yeah, I I do think that's true. Consumers know what, what they're taking and, you know, sort of secondary education mechanisms like doctors and dietitians are important supplements to that, but they're not going to be monitoring health the way a consumer would if they're taking medication and they're also taking supplements. They should understand that interaction clearly from the products.
0: So do you think it's just something that should fall in the government's hands?
1: I think that all consumer products should be safe for consumers to use, should work as make promises to work, should be free of quality concerns and adulterants and harms that aren't on the label, and that consumers have a right to an expectation of all those things.
0: What are your thoughts on the Canadian system or the Australian system? Is, Is that something that the U.S. could adopt?
1: Well, I don't know much about the Australian system, but the Canadian system is fascinating. And they do have much more pre-clearance authority in terms of how, this is my understanding, how products get to market and what claims can be made. And there's still a significant dietary supplement industry there, but it has a much tighter relationship with evidence (laughs) on efficacy and claims and also on safety. So, you know, I think it's a good model. I, I think you know, there's often sort of apocalyptic language about dietary supplements that dates back to the you know nineteen ninety four dietary supplement health education act uh, debate um, and it's just really not necessary. What I would like to see from the industry is a kind of maturation that says you know, we are willing to provide consumers with baseline assurances around safety in particular and would benefit from additional oversight. And, you know, that the sort of black eyes that the supplement industry gets fairly regularly from bad actors, you know, there, there shouldn't be a tolerance of that in the industry as well. It's not good for consumers and it's certainly not good for companies.
0: DeShay has been around, uh, I think, 27 years. It hasn't been amended. It has represented such a broad spectrum. Do you think it should be amended or changed or done away with?
1: It has been changed a couple of times, I believe. They added some additional authorities, but in minor ways. The basic structure of the law really hasn't been altered in the period. And I do think it's time to have an update. I think You know, the issues we're seeing around CBD supplements and the fact that the marketplace has moved so far out ahead of what FDA thinks is safe and there isn't an adequate set of tools to deal with that. Currently, the agency is a great case study in how innovations in the sector are going to keep outpacing the ability of regulators to even sort of keep up. And so it's time for a rethink. I think there's some pretty basic things that even many from the responsible parts of the industry, like product listing and registration, can get behind and have indicated that they support. And there's definitely room to come to the table and think about how do we you know, deal with some of the bad apples in the industry and keep consumers better protected than they are now. Yeah,
0: CBD is an excellent example of regulation or, or perhaps lack of regulation and the need to sort of move ahead and modernize.
1: Absolutely. And I do think that even with CBD, you are you have the emergence of a more responsible set of actors that are interested in quality control considerations that are thinking about how do you mainstream this kind of product in a safe way, but are being hampered by the fact that it's just a, a, an environment that's rife with fraud, abuse, and risk for consumers. You know, you have active levels, psychoactive levels of THC, the psychoactive ingredient in cannabis, in some of the products. You have concerns with heavy metals. You have products being marketed where there's no evidence, like to pregnant women. And there is a, just a lack of a toolbox, a basic toolbox on FDA's part to get a handle on the situation. So we've said we can imagine a world in which A carefully controlled and defined set of products can make it to market, but the FDA needs more tools in the toolbox to get there on supplements in particular.
0: It is sad that there are so many good companies out there, but there are a few bad apples that are tarnishing the industry's reputation and uh, kind of overshadowing the many good actors that have been self-policing, not just CBD, but supplements in general for years.
1: Yeah, I know that there are companies that invest in quality control. There was also um, an effort to set some private standards by some of the major retailers that I haven't checked in on in a while. But you know, the fact that the marketplace is going out and saying, okay, in the absence of reasonable regulatory shared oversight, we're gonna set our own quality standards. We're going to be chasing down the supply chain questions. We're gonna be dealing with the quality control issues. Over and above the, you know, good manufacturing practices rule what that requires, and the lack of resources that FDA has for, for inspections under that, you know, that is speaks to the fact that there are segments of this industry that are ready to and want recognition for investing in those quality and safety mechanisms, and um, that you know retailers like Costco and and GNC are trying to work to make sure that the supply chain does get fixed. So they care you know, about consumers, and I think that you know, effort and those kinds of efforts need to be reflected in, a, in an agenda for a federal oversight that applies to all companies. Because without that, then you're just sort of cleaning up the top end of the market, and you're not ensuring that those products are sound without dealing with the many fly-by-nights that are actually where a lot of the risk comes from. I know
0: you have experience on the Hill. What are lawmakers doing and saying about all of this, if anything?
1: I think there's appetite to think about solutions in this space. I think the CBD debate is driving a lot of it. It sort of scrambles the typical political lines. In many ways, there's lots of interest in supporting the hemp agriculture end of things and and thinking about a marketplace. And there's real hesitation, and rightly so, from many of the mainstream brands and outlets for entertaining a CBD product line um, without more quality assurances and controls. And so I think that's the kind of thing where, where you can see that there's a relationship between sound oversight from a regulatory perspective and the ability to innovate in the marketplace and connect with consumers. And if you don't have the sort of a functioning system, everything breaks. So we're approaching a moment where all of these ideas could could come together, and we could really be thinking about what does DeShay 2 look like as a set of reforms, and and how can we ensure that consumer interest in safe, reliable, properly labeled products is part of the picture, and that there's room for innovation around ingredients and pathways to market for those that are actually staffed with adequate safeguards in a way that creates consumer certainty and manufacturer certainty and brand, you know, certainty in those things. So, you know, I, I see it all sort of coming together. And I think there's real opportunity to think about where the missing pieces are.
0: The shade 2.0 has certainly been discussed. I'm sure that CBD will somehow make its way into that. Laura McCleary, public health advocate and CSPI policy director. Thank you so much for coming on the NutraCast. Thank you so much.
1: If you like what
0: you just heard, you can subscribe to the NutriCast on iTunes. And for even more relay related content, you can always head to nutraingredients usacom Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm Danielle Masterson. As always, I'll catch you here on the NutriCast next week.